All right, we're talking about the one that got away. If you're wondering why I called it that, because there is one woman Solomon could not get, could not have, could not woo, could not seduce, could not convince to come over to him. And it was the woman called the Shulamite. Now, so she's the one that got away. Even Solomon had one that got away. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about an hour of truth. Now, we closed last time with the shepherd coming to the Shulamite. Now, before we jump into this, let me remind you, this is a poem. It's a Spirit-inspired poem because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So even Song of Solomon, which is a very lengthy, beautiful, romantic poem, the Holy Spirit moved on a man many, 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 many centuries ago and moved on him to write what he wrote. So all these words that we're reading, the story that we are taking in, is Spirit-inspired. And I want to remind you, now when I say Spirit-inspired, that means all Scripture, every jot and tittle was, was inspired by God. Not just a, it's an inspirational poem, but inspired means God moved the author in what he wrote. Okay? Now, it's open to a lot of different ter- interpretations. Um, there's many different interpretations. As a matter of fact, more interpretations of the Song of Solomon than any book in the Bible but the book of Revelation. That one takes the cake. But Song of Solomon has lots of interpretations, okay? Now, I believe we have chosen the best one. If you disagree with me, chew the meat and spit out the bones. But it makes perfect sense to me the way we have interpreted it. Now, Let's remember, there are three main characters. There is the shepherd. He represents Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the church. Then there is the Shulamite, who represents the body of Christ, you and me. There is Solomon, uh, who represents the tempter. There's no way in this book that Solomon is a type of Christ. He's worldly. He is seductive. He's fleshly. He's all the things that Jesus is not. Now, we're going to meet a couple of new characters tonight, but they're fleeting, and so we don't really need to broach that right now. But we have, so we have the Shulamite, the bride of Christ. We have the shepherd, Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. We have Solomon, the tempter, and the court women who, are, who the, the Shulamite is conversing with back and forth a lot throughout this book. And the court women, the women of Solomon's court, his concubines, his wives, represent the citizens of this world who are sold out on the world and cannot understand how the Shulamite has such a love for the shepherd. Neither can the world we live in understand how we love the great shepherd and are willing to give up anything for him. Amen? Now, we closed last time with the shepherd coming to the Shulamite. Where is she? She has been kidnapped by Solomon. She has been taken into Solomon's pavilion, and she is essentially a prisoner. And the shepherd has visited her. He didn't deliver her from there, but he encouraged her in there like Jesus does you and me. And the way he encourages us in what really is sort of a prison. This world, no wonder Paul said in Romans 8, 
The whole creation is groaning to be delivered from this present world. So we closed last time with the shepherd coming to the Shulamite. The story records in chapter 2, verse 9, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Now she is talking to the shepherd. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is gazing through the lattice. Now remember, I'm recapping a little bit from last week. Remember that the walls and the windows suggest man-made obstacles, right? Look, the beloved shows up. He's standing behind her wall. He's looking through her windows. He's gazing through the lattice. He's making himself known to her there in Solomon's pavilion those walls and windows suggest man-made obstacles all right men build houses men build windows this is a metaphor it's a picture this whole song of solomon is a giant metaphor of christ and his church and the tempter and the people of this world so it's man-made barriers are they not that are erected between the soul and the savior he comes to her, but something is standing between him and her. Windows, walls, lattice. He peers in, but he's not going to force himself on her. He does not, notice this, he doesn't come marching in like Solomon. Solomon just saw her and said, wow, she's hot. I'm going to, and he commanded his men to grab her and carry her to his palace to make her a part of his harem. So he was forceful, he was aggressive, he was coercive. But notice the shepherd is not that way. The shepherd doesn't come where he's not invited. Now I'm going to say that again. The shepherd doesn't come where he's not invited. What does Revelation 3.20 say? Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. I don't kick the door down. I don't push my way in. I knock. And if any man hears my voice and look, where the will is involved here, and opens the door, then I will come into his life and sup with him and he with me. So unlike Solomon, the coercer, the shepherd is the beckoner. And he's that way today. The Lord Jesus will never force himself upon us. You want to go your own way? You can go your own way. He will let you go. You're going to pay for it but he will let you go. He is very careful not to override our will, so much so that he simply shows himself and leaves the next move to us. And that's exactly what happened to the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon. He's looking through the window, peering around the lattice. He's on the other side of the wall. She sees him, but he doesn't force himself on her. Now, we're going to see in, in this poem that the Shulamite hesitates when she sees him. She sees him, she doesn't seize the opportunity, and later she deeply, deeply regrets that she let him pass her by. But before he leaves, the shepherd says something to her before leaving. He has a message for her soul. Even though she had not come running out to him, he wanted to leave some words for her to hide in her heart. And I shared with you last time, I really, well, I know the Lord knows a lot of the time when he comes to you and to me, at different junctures in our life. He comes at crossroads in our life. He, he approaches us at, at times of major decisions. 
major turning points, major decision times, and he says, I'm here. And I know that a lot of the time when he does that, he knows we're not going to respond. But he also knows that later we're going to remember how he approached us before and the price we paid for not responding. And we're going to remember that and say, not this time, I'm responding. So he left some words for her. And the shepherd's call was threefold. It appealed to her will, it appealed to her mind, and it appealed to her heart. Now that call, those three things beautifully summarize the call of the Lord Jesus on our own lives. He appeals to our will, he appeals to our mind, and he always appeals to our heart. Now, first, let's look at those three, the three aspects of his calling. First, the first, his call was volitional. It was to her will. It was the call to recognize a new Lord. How many of you remember when the Lord first knocked on the door of your heart and it was a call to your will? Will you come to me? Will you yield to me? Will you allow me to be your new Lord, your new boss? Look what he says in verse 10. She, she is rehearsing now what happened. My beloved spoke, and he said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Can you hear Jesus there? Now, one thing is certain, the Lord Jesus did not force himself upon us. Each of us is given a measure of volition and powers of choice. If we didn't have a choice, then we are robots and not people. We have a choice. God has given every one of us the right to choose, or we would be puppets. And so when we worship him, what does it mean to him if he's making us do it? See, I really believe that one of the reasons God gave man a will, he wanted us to love him with our will. You know, nobody wants to be married to a Stepford wife who's just programmed and nothing is genuine, nothing is authentic, nothing is real. We want somebody of their own will to say to us, I think you're the greatest thing since peanut butter. Right? I think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You make my world rock. Amen? All right. If that isn't so, then statements like this. If we didn't have a will, then what do you do with verses like this? Whosoever will may come. Or what about, wilt thou be made whole? And what did that person say? I will. And then what about, choose you this day whom you will serve? I mean, if we have no choice, then how is God commanding us to choose? Amen? Meaningless rhetoric, all those verses would be if we didn't have a choice. Now, if we had no right to choose... We're not moral agents. Now, the first call of the shepherd was to the will. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. I want you to follow me. Let's go. It's a new day. It was a call to be united with him, to leave the old way of life, and to have a new Lord. And I so remember that day in my own life. Come away, Jeff. Come away with me. Matter of fact, let's try that. How many of you have a name? I just want to know. All right, let's try it. We're going to say, come away, and then I want you to put your name in there. Come away and do what? I'm going way back. I'm going to regret that. 
rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away and put your name in there. Because this is personal with every one of us. He said, I want you to rise up. I want you to follow me. I want you to come away. Leave this world of sin. Leave your sinful lifestyle. Leave your sinful friends. Leave whatever is blocking me from you and you from me. And follow me. That's the call of the shepherd. So the first one was to the will. Now, the next call, the call of the shepherd was logical to the mind. It was the call to receive a new life. It embraced all the dimensions of time. Past, he talked about his past. Present, talked about his present and future. First, let's look at how he related to the past. Look what he said in verse 11. For lo, the winter is past. I want you to read that with me. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. What's he saying? That cold, dark, barren, empty, former life is past. The winter is past. The storms of winter had ended. The harsh, barren pain of a lifeless past was gone. A new season was about to begin. Summer suns were on the way. The past was the past. It was over. We like to say the past is past because it's the past. That's the beauty of the gospel, folks. It deals with our past. See, only the shepherd can say to us, really and truly and fully and totally, the winter of your past is past. The past can't just be swept under the rug. You know why? Because it must be forgiven. Until the past is forgiven, then the winter can't be past. But when the past can be forgiven, then we are really experiencing a blessing. It must be forgiven, and God alone can do that. Through Jesus, that's exactly what he did. He died for our past sins, took our incalculable indebtedness toward God upon himself, and he paid the price in full. The winter really is past. So you don't have to live there. You don't have to go back there. You don't have to feel guilty about back there. It's all washed away. Thank God for the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So let's say it together. The winter is past. Now I want you to tell the devil, the winter is past. Now tell yourself the winter is past. Now give God a hand of praise for what he's done. That's good. Amen. Now having dealt with the past, the shepherd points to the present. Look what he says in verse 12. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of the birds has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. What is that verse smack of? New life. The past is gone. It's time for a new life. In other words, here's what he's saying, and this is how it relates to you and me. Our daily present tense experience with Jesus should be one of beauty, bliss, and blessing and new life. How many of you believe that? We ought to be living that every single day. You know, we preached last weekend on being thankful. If you just get up and you just start thanking God just for the cross and for the blood, it has a way of 
setting your mind and setting your heart into the reality of what the gospel has done for you. He has given you a brand new life. The winter is past. The spring has come. It's time for new life. It's time for new horizons. It's time for new blessings. It's time for new hope. It's time for new vision. It's time, if any man be in Christ, the old is passed away and all is become new. That's what he's talking about. Flowers speak of spring with exciting new life. And they bring a wonderful fragrance that fills the air. Likewise, instead of the bleakness and the barrenness of cold, stormy winter, Jesus wants to bring beauty and freshness. What did the prophet say about Jesus? He said he gives beauty for ashes, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, beauty for ashes. That's what Jesus does. And, and that's what was happening with this Shulamite. Now, notice, he wants to fill our lives with song. Quote, the singing of the birds has come. Let me tell you what Satan does. Satan fills our lives with tears and sorrow. You know what sin does? It blights everything it touches. Don't let the devil fool you when he says to you, well, Christians live a boring life, and you don't want to be one of those Bible-thumping, straight-laced, church-going, boring Christians. You need to come and be worldly like us. They're lying. Because let me tell you who really has the tough time. It's those who live in sin. It says the way of the sinner is hard. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I've come that you might have life and have it much more abundantly. As a matter of fact, when you look at what Jesus said he was going to do for you and me, if we let him into our life, that's where it's really happening. But Satan, he'll fill you with tears. You'll wake up with regrets. You'll live your life out in sorrows, and you'll die in your sin. But not with Jesus. He puts a new song in our mouth. He said, I have come that you might have life, and that more abundantly, John 10, 10. And he even wants to fill our lives with bliss. Can you say the word with me, bliss? Now, bliss is strong. Bliss is a very emotional word. But he says, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land. <laughs> you say, well, what in the world does that mean? What's a turtle dove? The turtle dove in Scripture is a beautiful symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you, when you're in a time of revival, when the voice of the Spirit is heard in the land, when the voice of the Spirit instead of the voice of the enemy is heard in the land, he said, the voice of the turtle dove is, is heard in the land. He brings into a human heart, that is Jesus, the great shepherd, all the blessings of God in Christ. What a blessing it is when the voice of the turtle dove is heard throughout the land. And what a blessing it is when the voice of the turtle dove is heard in your own heart. I heard the turtle dove a few times today. How about you? Speaking to me, encouraging me, giving me wisdom, the voice of the turtle dove and it lifts you, it takes stress off of you, it puts a skip in your step, a gleam in your eye, a smile on your face. The shepherd's call reaches into the past, it reaches into the present, and it also embraces the future. This is strong, verse 13, very meaningful. Look at what it says. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, 
and come away. Now, that's the shepherd talking to the Shulamite. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now, we have two things here I want us to look at, the fig tree and the vine. Because he talks about two things, the fig tree putting forth figs and the vine putting forth tender grapes. What is he talking about? Let's take the vine first. Jesus talked about the vine in John 15. While national Israel had failed to produce the spiritual fruit God had desired, because national Israel never did, read from Exodus through Deuteronomy, then read the book of Judges, and all you read about is a chronicle of failure after failure after failure after dismal, abysmal failure. We see the first generation not even able to cross the Jordan into the promised land because of their endless complaining. The first generation had to die out in the sand while the second generation, their children, were able to cross over. But even them, when they crossed over, failed and failed and failed again. Book of Judges is nothing but failure, deliverance, failure, deliverance, failure, deliverance, failure. So they didn't produce the fruit that God had called them to produce. They were God's nation. All the way back to Genesis 12, verse 1, the Abrahamic covenant, the call of Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Through you, I want all the nations of the earth to know that I'm real. But as they grew and multiplied in Egypt into millions, a true nation, they never brought forth the grapes, the fruit that God had called them to. So what happened? Well, while national Israel had failed to produce the spiritual fruit God desired, the Lord's church would do so. Look what Jesus said. I'm the vine. Abide in me and I in you. And here's what will happen if you do that. You will bring forth fruit. What fruit? The fruit he had wanted Israel to bring forth. The church is now a chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, called out people. For what reason? To declare the glory and the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Israel had been called to do. But they failed at it. So, so God went to the, the Gentiles. And I don't know about you, but I'm a Gentile. Every Gentile in here, raise your hand. If I have any 100% Jews, raise your hand. If you're a 100% Jew, see, we be Gentiles. We were grafted into the vine. Amen? So, so here's the deal. So now, now God is saying, you're going to bring forth the fruit. You're going to tell the nations about my glory. You are now going to declare my praises to the earth. And Jesus said, it's simple. You abide in me and I abide, and I abide in you, and you're going to start producing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. You're going to start producing the fruit of the kingdom. So the vine is associated with the church age, where the fruit Israel had failed to produce would be produced by a people abiding in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, that's the vine, the church age. Now, what about the fig tree? The fig tree is associated with the end of the church age, the end when Christ returns. Remember the time when Jesus walked up that fig tree? The disciples are all standing there. Jesus came up to a fig tree, 
And he looked at it. It had leaves, but it had no figs. And what did Jesus do? He cursed it. Why did he do that? Because it says the disciples were stunned. He cursed the fig tree because it was fruitless and it was deceptive. What did that fig tree represent? Old Testament Israel. It had leaves, but no figs, no fruit. It looked good, but there was no figs on it, so it was deceptive in its appearance. It looked like it had the goods, but it didn't, like a lot of churches today. You can come up to a great, big, beautiful structure and walk into a multi-million dollar building and sit down in a refrigerator because there is no life, no fruit, no move of the Spirit, no salvation, no nothing. They look good from the outside. There's leaves, but there's no fruit. So the fig tree was deceptive in its appearance. And when Jesus cursed it, he didn't just curse it because he was mad at some fig tree. He was giving us a message, a metaphor, a symbol, an illustration. The fig tree Jesus cursed quickly withered and died. This was Jesus' only judgment miracle. Everything else, he made it come alive, made it be healed, delivered it. But this, he killed it. He judged it. It was symbolic. Here's what it depicted, the drying up of Jewish national life. The Old Testament, as Jesus stood there, was passing away. It had not borne the fruit. It had not produced what God had called it to. And the New Testament was out to, about to be inaugurated in the world. And so the Old Testament was passing away. So Jesus, in cursing that fig tree, was saying, here's why the Old Testament is passing away. The New Testament is coming in because what God intended for Old Testament Israel never happened. They had the leaves but no fruit. So there's about to be a brand new day. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he predicts that the nation of Israel, though it died in the New Testament, came in, and all the Old Testament sacrifices and rituals were put away, and the veil in the temple was rent in half, and all the Old Testament sacrifices ceased. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, that the nation of Israel would flourish again at the end of the age, of the gospel age, of the age of grace. At the end of the age of grace, Israel would flourish again. In fact, the rebirth of the state of Israel would signal the approach of the end times, the end of the end times, and of the end of the church age. Jesus said these words. Now learn this lesson from the what kind of tree? Fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know something. Summer's near. Oh, look, there's little green sprouts, something. It must be approaching summertime because in the winter, it's all dead. Even so, said Jesus, when you see all these things, Israel reborn as a nation. You know that it is near right at the door. And what is the preposition it? It is talking about the return of Messiah to the earth. So the fig tree blossomed when Israel became a nation again in 1948. When Israel became a nation again in 1948, 
If you understood prophecy, then you saw on the fig tree called ancient Israel green sprouts coming again. And when you saw the green sprouts, Israel becoming a nation again, Jesus said that generation will not pass till all these things have been fulfilled. So we're living in heavy, heavy, heavy times. Exciting times, prophetic times. The shepherd said to the Shulamite, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Here's what he is saying to her. She must be ready for instant departure. When the shepherd came to lead her out of her difficult circumstance, because at the end of the book, he does. She is taken out. So when he came to lead her out of her difficult circumstances into a new experience of life with him, he's saying to her, you need to be ready. And church, we need to be ready because we be the Shulamite. And our great shepherd is going to come and take us out of the prison of this world one day. And he's saying, you better be ready. Lift up your heads, your redemption draws nigh. So the Lord Jesus will soon say to his church, <laughs> let's read it together, arise, my love. Oh, that's exactly what he's going to say. Jesus said the day has come when everybody that's in the grave is going to hear a shout. And it's not going to be stay there. It's going to be arise out of the grave, out of the earth, into my presence in the heavens. Arise, my love, my fair one. And come away. Amen. Amen. The church, the bride of Christ, is about to be delivered from its current restrictive surroundings. Do you believe that? Amen. The shepherd is coming to snatch us away. Now, the shepherd's call was to her will. Will you follow me? Her mind. And finally, to her heart. The call to realize a new love. Look at verse 14. Oh, my dove. You are in the clefts of the rock. Now, he's talking to her. You're in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see your countenance. Let me hear your voice. Now, church, when the shepherd's talking to Shulamite, it's Jesus talking to us. So keeping that in mind, picture Jesus now, and he's talking to us, the New Testament Shulamite. Oh, my dove, you are in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see you. Let me hear your voice. And your countenance is comely. What's going on here? He's saying, come out into the open. Let me see you. Quit hiding. Let me hear from you. Don't be so elusive. Come out from behind the rocks, from hiding behind the stairs. <laughs> Even E.T. was to phone home. <laughs> Do you 
Do you hear the voice of the shepherd here? He's saying, look. He said, I love you. You love me. My banner over you is love, and we've got a relationship going on here, and you say that you are totally committed to me. Then, then let me hear from you. Let me see you. Let's, let's, let's grow in our relationship. Quit hiding from me. You know, we hide behind busyness. We, we can even hide behind religious activities. We can get so busy with the work of the Lord that we do not get in touch with the Lord of the work. We can get caught up in a million different things, and, and, here, and the Savior, the shepherd, is always standing and saying, come out into the open. Where are you? I haven't heard from you. You're not relating to me. Let me see you. Let's get to know one and let's grow in our relationship together. Come out from behind all that busyness, all those barriers. From behind the stairs, let's grow in our love. That's the call on the church. Salvation isn't just getting a ticket to go to heaven someday, and your, your, your eternal security is secured. It is a relationship we enter into, and it is, it is, it is an outright, open, blunt call to let's get to know one another don't hide from me. I'm not condemning you. I'm not against you. I'm not out to get you. I, I love you, and I want to hear from you. Amen. Jesus wants to hear from us, his bride. He wants an open, reciprocal relationship with us. No more hiding from him. In the story now, the Shulamite is still talking with the court women. They don't understand her at all. What's your deal? If This is the king of the world, Solomon. He's filthy rich. He's got everything you could ever want. What, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just give in and forget that shepherd and sell out to Solomon? So the Shulamite is still talking with the court women. Her sole line of defense against them has been to brag about her beloved shepherd. Every time they try to get her to defect, she brags on the shepherd. That's a great tactic. When the devil says, hey, why don't you have a little taste of the world? Just say, you know what? It doesn't appeal to me at all because I'm in love with the shepherd. Okay? Now, she's just been talking about his love for her. Now she's going to talk about her love for him. Before we read her statements, I want to point something out to you. It's very clear that the shepherd's love for her was far greater than her love for him clear in the story. He doesn't allow any obstacles to come between them. He leaps over all of them, leaping over the mountains, jumping over the hills, as Song of Solomon describes. But she, on the other hand, she allows hindrances to come between them from time to time. And once again, it's true to type. It is true for you and me. As Christ's bride, don't we? We do. We allow obstacles to come between us and our shepherd. Our love for him is often weak, shifting. It's easily turned aside. You know, you have people out there, every time the church doors open, they are there, and they're the last ones out, and then something happens. You start seeing less and less of them. They move from the front row to the back. Now, you in the back, don't worry about it, because <laughs> I'm not saying anything about you. I'm just drawing a little illustration. And then they start disappearing, and you wonder what's happened to them, and, and something has come between them and the shepherd. And they start to drift. It's a person. 
It's a place. It's a thing. It's an idol. Something. And their relationship is affected. And that's the way it was with this Shulamite. So the Shulamite speaks of her hindered love. And there's three hindrances she's dealing with, and I think we can agree with all or identify with all of them. First, she's hindered by her protective family. If you weren't here the first night, remember, her brothers did not like the shepherd. And they became aware that she was meeting the shepherd in the field where the flocks were. And they didn't like this guy. They didn't understand her love for him. They didn't like the way he looked. They didn't like something about him. And so they intervened and they took her out of the fields and they put her into a vineyard working in the vineyard night and day, and they did it to separate her from the shepherd. So her family came in between her and the shepherd. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I have. My family did not understand Jeff's love for Jesus. And when I would go home and brag on Jesus, man, they headed each for their own bedroom and shut the door. Nobody got it. And their attitude was this. Oh, there's Jeff. He goes from one extreme to the other. He's going from drugs to, you know, heavy duty religion, probably some cult. They did not understand that I had fallen in love with a great shepherd. And, and, but they tried intervening and interposing and, and steering me away from my fervency. Cool it, Jeff. Don't be so fanatical. While they would go to a football game, paint their skin a different color, and scream in the middle of, wither, or middle of winter while a leather ball was taken from one end of a field to another. But don't you be fanatical about your faith. <laughs> so her family got in the way. Second, she's hindered by a prohibitive society. Oh, are we there? Oh, yes. It's only going to get worse. As represented by the watchmen that we're going to meet in just a moment. But she's hindered by a prohibitive society. Our society right now is doing everything in the world to kill the faith of Christians, to come between the Christian and the shepherd. Third, she was hindered by a permissive atmosphere. The company that surrounded her, these court women, were anything but moral, godly, holy, wholesome, good examples, anything but. And they were not conducive to cultivating a vibrant love for the shepherd. And our society, once again, is totally permissive now and doesn't agree with our moral stand at all, doesn't understand it one bit. Good is now evil, evil good. Right, wrong, and wrong is right. Dark is light, and light is dark. Sweet is bitter, and bitter is sweet. It's completely upside down. So if you take a stand for the Lord, you're in a permissive atmosphere. That's why every day you've got to get up and thank God, spend time in the Word, and pray, and walk out your front door filled with the Spirit and not good morning America. Amen? Now, starting in verse 15, she addresses her past problem, these different things that came in the way of her and the shepherd, by reminiscing about the hostility toward her beloved she'd experienced at home with her brothers. And I already told you the story, so I'm going to shoot right past that. But here's what the brothers said, verse 15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vine, they had said, for our vines have tender grapes. In other words, sister... Come over to the vineyard and get out of that field. 
Their goal was simple. Make it as difficult as possible for her to have any further liaison with her beloved shepherd. And what did Jesus say? A man's foes shall be those of his own household. Now, sharing this with the court women, the problem the Shulamite experienced now of being a virtual prisoner in Solomon's pavilion wasn't anything new. She had experienced people trying to come in between her and the shepherd. Her brothers had tried to come between her and the shepherd, and now she was separated from him by Solomon. It seemed like there was always something or somebody trying to come between her and the shepherd. And isn't that true for you and me every single day? But persecution, I'm glad to announce tonight, often backfires. Instead of intimidating the new believer, it often only serves to drive him or her closer to Jesus Christ. And the Shulamite only gave herself more completely to the shepherd. The more these different forces tried to separate her from him, the stronger she recommitted to him. And that's the way it ought to be with you and me. When the enemy, when the world, the flesh, and the devil come against our relationship with the shepherd, we ought to say, praise God, I'm going to seek him stronger than ever before. Nothing is going to separate me from the shepherd. She next expresses her passion. She says in verse 16 uh, and verse 17, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And he feeds among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. Here's what she's saying. In spite of all the obstacles, the Shulamite is expressing undying loyalty to the shepherd. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. And my relationship with him is more important to me than anything Solomon can offer me. Her relationship was more real to her than anything else. And then he is also to her as royalty. She says he feeds among the lilies. What did Jesus say about the lilies? Walking along one day with the disciples, he says he pointed to the lilies of the field and he said, Behold, the grass of the field. See that. Look at those lilies. Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of those. The lily, said Jesus, was more beautifully clothed than even Solomon. So she, in calling her beloved a lily, is saying he's royalty to me. He's my king. She also occupied herself with his return until the day breaks and the shadows fully awake. Church, can I tell you, the day is going to come, and it seems sometimes like it never will, but the day is going to come when Christ breaks through that sky. And when he does, all the shadows are going to flee away. All the shadows are going to flee away, and the day star is going to rise. Likewise, for us, we look forward to the soon return of Christ, which will be like the breaking of day when all the shadows of death and sorrow will flee away. It's coming. And she closes out verse 17 by expressing passionate longing. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. What does that mean? Well, the hills are also called the mountains of Bether. B-E-T-H-E-R. 
The mountains of Bether are rendered by some translators as the mountains of separation, the mountains that separate. The Shulamite saw her beloved as a deer. You remember this a couple of weeks ago? She saw her beloved as a deer at home upon those mountains, who was, and he was able to leap over those mountains to reach her, to get to her, to find her, to come to her and strengthen her. And the mountains of separation might stand between them, she's saying, but they were nothing to him. She says, come to me, shepherd. Jump over those hills and get to me. Even though they are mountains of separation, they can't stop you. And so, too, we long for the Lord to return. And the mountains of separation may seem ominous to us. I mean, get this. Talk about a mountain of separation. Over 2,000 years have passed since he said, I'm going to come again and carry you to myself. We experience every day all the tug and pull of the world, mountains of separation. And it seems so far from earth to heaven. I mean, we're here, and he is there. And it's a long, long way. But guess what? Even though we're imprisoned on a rebel planet, and he dwells in glorious eternity, we need to remember that those mountains of distance and time and difficulty and devils and flesh are nothing to him. When he decides to come, he will leap over those hills of obstacles. He will find us. He will carry us back to glory. It's nothing to him. So then the, the Shulamite's love was a hindered love, but it was a love that had learned to laugh at hindrances. Now, hers was also a hungry love. The Shulamite is still talking to the court women in Solomon's pavilion about the past. And here's what she does. She recounts another incident that it also happened sometime before. She shares about a dream. Here was the dream. She tells these court women, by night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The Shulamite had dreamed of the shepherd. It was so real that when she woke up, she put her hand out to touch him, but he wasn't there. It was that vivid, that real. Only a dream is what it was. But the dream had been so vivid it left her shaken with her whole heart crying out for the absent shepherd. How many of you have ever had a dream so vivid that when you woke up, it was like, oh my gosh, that had to be real. That had to be real. It was that vivid. She woke up after having this dream about the shepherd, and it was so vivid, so real, she was shaken, she was moved, she was stirred. It fully woke her up. And on awaking, she could hardly tell reality from her dream. So what does she do? She sets out on a frantic search. She said in verse 2, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, and I'm going to go to the broadways. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, she tells these court women. I really went out and looked for him, but I found him not. Catch this, the Shulamite literally arose from her bed, dressed herself, slipped out into the night, and began to search the dark streets of that eastern city. She explored the highways and the byways alone. This beautiful woman alone at night, driven by her longing for the shepherd. It was not smart. 
Her loneliness, her longing, and her love drove her into a course of action that was totally unwise. You know, you do dumb things when you're lonely. For once she allowed her passion to overrule her prudence. Now here's the lesson for you and me. Picture her out there. She's walking the streets. There were no street lights in that time. She's out there in the dark of night looking for the shepherd. She was so moved by this dream. And here's the lesson for you and me. The Lord loves it when we love him back, but the Lord will never ask us to do things that are foolish and that compromise our testimony. She was really courting trouble being out there on her own. Jesus understands a daring kind of love very well. And he also understands Satan's ability to try to capitalize on our love for him. He'll try to get you to do dumb things because you say you love Jesus. The enemy, remember, urged Jesus in the wilderness to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple to demonstrate his trust in God. You really trust God? You really love God? Show the world and jump off of this pinnacle of this temple. He'll catch you midair. But Jesus knew better. We should be willing to do great things for God, church. But two principles should always guide our way, no matter how much we love Jesus. Wisdom should always be right next to you. First, we should pray heavily and long about major decisions. Never make a major decision until you have really prayed it through. Second, we should never act in a way that is contrary to the known and revealed mind and will of God as found in His Word. Because I don't care how much you love Jesus, He will never lead you to do something contrary to the written Word. Never. Never. He will never make an exception out of you. He will never say, well, others can't, but you can. He will never say, well, you're so special to me that you can break the rules while they can't. That's the voice of the devil. We are all subject to the written, God-breathed Word, and if we do something out of love for Christ, it must always be in line with the guidelines of Scripture. We should also remember to never act on impulse. Oh, listen to me on this one. Satan always pressures us to make quick, hasty moves. Go, 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 go. Now, now, now is the voice of hell. You'll never have an opportunity like this one again. Grab it quick. That's never the voice of the Lord. Satan pushes. Jesus leads. Okay? God never pushes us, coerces us, kicks us down the road. He beckons. He makes me to lie down in pastures of tender grass. He leads me beside the still waters. He leads me in his righteousness for his name's sake. Satan, go, get it, grab it, do it now. God leads us patiently and he leads us gently. The Shulamite acted hastily and stepped right into danger. Thankfully, God overruled the whole mistaken expedition of the Shulamite. <laughs> and, and we're going to see that in a minute. But thank God he often delivers us from unwise decisions. Amen? Amen. Come on, everybody. Yeah. Doesn't he? 
Thank God. She, she testifies here as we head towards the close about how she was overruled by the providence of God. Verse 3, the watchmen that go around the city, the, the police of that day, found me. And to whom I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Now they're thinking this girl is high or drunk. Here comes the police. They grab her. She, and they said, what are you doing here? Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Y'all see this now. It's nutty. There she was, wandering the streets at night alone. The watchman could very have easily thought she was a prostitute or a crazy woman. The Shulamite, at least, did a very wise thing when they apprehended her. She gave her testimony. I'm in love. I'm looking for my shepherd. I'm saved. Apparently, they let her go, escorted her back. But we can well imagine what they said after leaving her. She's crazy, baby. She's nuts. Hope you find him. Bye. <laughs> so the Shulamite had a hindered love, and she had a hungry love. And she carries on with her story in verses 4 and 5, which we'll look at next time. Let's stand, can we? Amen. God is good. Aren't you just, doesn't this book make you want to love Jesus more? Can you hear him saying to us, come away? Now, before he takes us up into glory, he wants us to come away with him in our lifestyle, in our walk, in our attention, seeking first the kingdom of God. So can we just lift our hands to the Lord and say, Lord, I hear you. You're my great shepherd. I hear your voice. Come away, my beloved. Lord, I want to come with you. I want to follow you. Down that narrow road that leads to life. Now I want you to imagine something as we close. I want you to imagine the great shepherd extending his hand right towards you. I want you to reach out and take that hand. And say, shepherd, I will follow you. I come away with you. In Jesus' name. Because of what the Lord has done for Let's sing this right before we go. Give thanks. Give thanks. Take his hand. With a grateful heart. Take his hand. Give thanks. Thank you, Lord. To the Holy One. Give thanks. Because he's given. Jesus Christ it is so oh, reach up and take that hand and now and now let the weak say I am strong let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done 
yes, Lord. One more time, and now. ready to come away with him amen. amen well it begins as soon as we walk out of the sanctuary follow jesus all right this weekend don't well i'll tell you last weekend was strong and we're going to be talking about praise entering into his courts spirit of praise is going to fall matter of fact i expect god to move in a way that is going to really stir our hearts so don't miss this weekend bring somebody that needs jesus we love you Let's count to three and shout, come away, my beloved, and have a great night. Are you ready? One, two, three. Come away, my beloved. Amen. God bless you.